So good to see you guys this morning on this overcast, maybe drizzly morning. Thank you for joining us. Uh, if you guys don't know me, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to Aletheia Church. We are glad to have you here with us this morning. Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, that's where we're going to be this morning, or pull out your scripture journal. Um, if this is your first time with us and you have not gotten a scripture journal yet and would like one, you can grab one off of the desk uh, or the welcome table over here. That's our free gift to you. Uh, we love the Word of God here and believe that it has power uh, to transform your life through the Holy Spirit. And so we would love to give that to you as a gift. We have Bibles there as well. If you do not have a Bible, we would love to give you one. Uh, and while you guys turn over there, I want to just do a quick informal poll. Uh, I'm not going to do any statistical analysis of this, so you can be honest and just uh, let me know. All right. How many of you guys had a New Year's resolution for 2021? Show of hands. Like four of you. Okay, great. Okay, of you four, raise your hand if you have already failed. Okay, yep. I'm actually seeing some hands now going up that weren't up earlier, meaning you failed to make the resolution, apparently. That's what we're talking about. Okay, so how many of you guys that failed, how many of you given up already? Raise your hand. Super duper honesty. Yeah, there we go. All right. Okay, all right. So a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Stephen um, preached on the importance of resolutions and how they can even be uh, biblically supported and valuable um, in our lives and to our walk with Jesus. And, and I think one of the things he tried to address a little bit and, and something I think we, you know, really in the first month of every year, we tend to do this, right? It's a new year. You know, I always love the people that I had in high school. And some of you guys, I might be making fun of you here in just a second. So forgive me. Right. But every year it's the same resolution. I'm going to cut toxic people out of my life. Right. And then December, it's going to be new. This year, I'm going to cut toxic people out of my life. And at some point, I just want to be like, maybe you're toxic. Right. Right. And hold on. Let me stop by saying this. The, the scriptures tell us that we're all toxic. Okay. Because some of you guys are like, oh, Kevin's mean. Well, yeah. But it's our sinfulness that creates the toxicity. Right. And in that, if you want to cut toxic people out of your life, you're going to be very lonely. And so as we, as we think through this, right, every year, right, it's kind of like a, a free reset button, right, when the calendar changes over to a new year, and we think, hey, I'm going to resolve to do something new. And then almost inevitably, right, statistics have shown over time that like 90% of people that start a New Year's resolution fail to make it through the first 30 days, and by six months, like 98% of them have failed and have fallen back into old habits. And, and we can ask ourselves this question, why do we fail so frequently then? Why, why can't we figure this out? And I think one of the reasons is, is that oftentimes our resolutions tend to be uh, shallow or surface level, right? And let me, let me give you an example of that, right? Let's, let's use like the famous one, the health example that everyone every year, you know, oh, the holidays are here. I got 10 pounds I need to lose, right? And so your goal is to lose 10 pounds and you lose that 10 pounds or you don't, but you pursue that, but there's usually no depth to that. And, and there needs to be a deeper goal with goals to hit on the way to, to that goal. But the deeper goal would be something like, I just want to live a healthier, 
lifestyle. I want to lose weight, keep that weight off. I want to reduce body fat percentage or I want to gain in strength, but I just want an overall higher quality of life and health in pursuit of this. And I'm going to set some smaller goals on the way to that larger goal. Because if you set the one small goal starting out, right, it's, you can lose 10 pounds and then what? Right? It becomes harder right, to continue to pursue that goal once you've reached it. And some of you guys are sitting here going, where is Kevin going with this? Right? How does this tie to anything that we're going to see in 2 Timothy? Well, think about this. Paul is going to share a statement with Timothy this morning in our text that I think is going to be of great encouragement to us if we take the time to hear it, take a step back, reflect on it, and then respond to it. Right, let me read verse 1 to you. And let me start unpacking what I think Paul is trying to say to Timothy. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I think that Paul in these verses is going to unpack for us how we can approach life as followers of Jesus so that we might be strengthened not in our own power, but in knowing who we are from an identity standpoint in Christ and working from that identity, continue to grow into maturity so that we can actually see tangible fruit and growth and maturity in our lives that is in step with Christ and his character and what we seek to pursue. But this means not making superficial goals, but actually desiring to know God more, love him more deeply. And for some of you guys here this morning, maybe beginning a relationship with Jesus for real, for the first time. And let me just say this, right? What we're going to talk about this morning is a process, not a one-time thing. There may be a, a light bulb that clicks on this morning as we read and study through the word this morning. But what we're going to study and look at this, this morning is a lifetime of work and pursuit of Christ. And so what we're going to talk about is not going to be like a goal for 2021. It's not going to be even a goal for the next decade, right? It's going to be a genuine heart transformation towards Christ, making him known and seeing him grow in our lives that hopefully right, we will see God do a large work in our lives over a lifetime for his glory. And that's why in verse 7, Paul himself even says to Timothy, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Right? What he's, he's pointing to Timothy is that, dude, this is going to take some time for you to process through. Right? Here you are, a teacher, a pastor in Ephesus, and yet what I'm going to be speaking to you about in, in this portion of, the, of my letter to you is going to take a lifetime to process through and work through along with the Lord. And so we should walk away today knowing three things. And I know that I tend to give you guys a few things. It's very TED Talk of me, right? To kind of give you what my points are from the start. The, I'm just going to be honest with you guys to start. These uh, points are extremely wordy, but I could not simplify them. So I apologize, right? But here they are. Number one, our ability to know God and grow in him comes from Jesus's finished work on the cross. 
Right? That's going to be the platform where we're going to kind of view everything this morning. That our ability to know God and grow in him comes from Jesus' work on the cross. Number two, we have been given everything we need in Jesus to know him, love others, and fulfill his will for our lives today. Notice, I am very specific with my language in that one. Right? God is giving us what we need to sustain us, to allow us to pursue him, to pursue others, to seek joy and obedience and satisfaction in Christ for today. He's equipping us. And then number three, we never move past needing the salvation that is in Jesus. We never move past that. Okay, so let's dive in. Starting with this first point, right? Our ability to know God and grow in him comes from Jesus's work on the cross. Let me read these first two verses for you. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So Paul starts out this portion of the letter by reminding Timothy of something really, really important. Timothy, we never outgrow needing the gospel. We never outgrow that. Timothy, no matter how long you are a follower of Jesus, you will never outgrow your need for Jesus and his mercy to you through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. To word it another way, you cannot pursue God in your own strength and succeed. So if you were a follower of Jesus here this morning, and you can see that we're get, beginning to kind of like unwrap what we're looking at this morning, right? We're, we're talking about spiritual maturity and growing in maturity towards Christ, right? And, and my main point here that we think that I think Paul is kind of pointing out to Timothy and would be pointing out to us as well is if you want to grow in your relationship with Christ, you cannot pursue God in your own strength and succeed. It's impossible. And, and let, me, let me peel back now like over a decade worth of ministry experience that I've had to, for what I tend to see out of professing believers, including myself. I, I see this tendency inside of believers to kind of fall into two categories of people as they seek to grow in Christ. Right, The first one would be what I would consider to be highly disciplined or motivated people. You typically also have a type A personality. Right, and here's, here's what you'll notice out of those people. You could call them high strength people, but they pursue godliness by making a list of do's and don'ts. I am going to read my Bible. I am going to pray. I am going to do this. I am going to do that. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. And they, they have this, by the, by the time you sit there long enough, they have this list of, uh, of 30 things that they can do to be the perfect follower of Jesus. Then the other camp, right, is what I'd like to call the, the low discipline or the low strength people, right? This is the camp I fall into, right? And, and this camp of people, Right? They pursue godliness by just mentally assenting to what Jesus has done without surrendering and pursuing obedience to Christ. Right? So they've reduced being a disciple of Jesus down to mere mental or theological assent, but with no real desire to live a changed life to the glory of God. 
And so you have one camp who cares deeply about all of their actions and how they appear and will do everything they can to at least give the appearance of obedience. And then you have the other camp who tends to take a step back and say, well, if Jesus did this, then my life doesn't matter. As long as I assent to what Christ has done, I'm good. And let me just say this. Both of these methods are insufficient. And not only that, weirdly enough, if you peel them back enough, they're actually done completely in our own effort and desire. And if you pursue God in your own power, hear me on this one, church. If, if, if we, if we want to make much of God, if we seek to pursue him in our own power, we will fail. We will. We will fail to, to get after what we really seek which is to know God more and to make much of him with our lives. There'll be no spiritual growth. There'll be no fruit. And let me just say this, especially the first camp people. I love you guys. Jackie, I love you, honey, but that's you. It's my wife. Even if you succeed in that realm, you'll still fail. Because success oftentimes will then lead to pride which would then lead to failure. And I've seen that in a number of people, especially those in pastoral ministry over the years, where they fail to recognize their own need for God's grace and mercy in their lives, and they, fail, they preach a gospel to people that is dead because the gospel is not real in their own hearts. And they become wicked and terrible leaders because they're constantly yelling at the people in their, con in their congregations to get their act together as if they have their act together. And so if we desire to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, we must start with knowing that the ability to even pursue godliness is only possible because Jesus made it possible. And from that framework, we then remain in that by faith. In that truth, knowing we will only experience God more, know God more, and love him more if we are aware that we never move past our need for Jesus. We never move past our need for God's mercy to us in Christ. We never move past our need for God's forgiveness towards us in his son, Jesus Christ. We never move past needing God's acceptance to us that is only found in Christ. We never move past needing God's love that is only found for us in Christ. Now, if this sounds difficult to process, let me just say this, it is, right? Because here's what I'll say. Most churches aren't going to consistently remind you of this. And as a pastor, I can say, it would be easier for me not to teach this. It would be easier for me to teach you to just do exactly what I tell you to do because then I'd have a bunch of followers who are doing exactly what I want you to do all the time. Right? So this is the trap that, that pastors and churches fall into. And they end up making imitators of themselves instead of imitators of Christ. But if... But if, if, if we're going to understand this, if we're going to be the church, right? One of our desires here, right, is that, 
For those of you guys that are, that are students or you're in Gainesville for a short period of time, one of our visions and values for you guys is to be the church well beyond your time in Gainesville. Like I have this dream that 30 years from now, right, there's these gospel-centered movements just all over the place because of people that were discipled here and then discipled others and made much of Jesus and were faithful to his call in their lives. Then we're all going to get to heaven one day and we're just going to worship the king celebrating what he did in our lives. But I want to just give you a brief kind of illustration. If you'll put that uh, chart up on the TV for me. Um, I, this, is, this is something I found really, really helpful that if, if we're to understand that we never move past needing the gospel in our lives, right? This comes from my favorite study that's ever been done outside of scripture, right? But it's centered around scripture. It's called the gospel-centered life material. For some of you guys that have been around long enough, you, you've been around me, I've forced you to go through this. And then I maybe even made you do it again because I don't think we ever grow past needing this. Right, but in that study, right, he, he gives us this chart and it's called the gospel grid. Right? And I think this is just a, a really cool illustration to help us understand what maturity in Christ looks like over the course of time. So if you look at the beginning, right, it says time there, and there's just this static line moving. Right? And then you get to this point, right, and this is the moment of conversion. This is the moment where God and his mercy and grace towards you has revealed Christ to you and your need for him. Right? For some of you guys, this was like the, the CD burning or the iPod burning at, at youth camp or you came down at the altar call and you had this mountaintop experience or you prayed in the backyard with your older brother who led you to Christ or whatever it may be. Right, But that was it. That was that moment you realized like, hey, I've got it. I'm a believer. Right, This is it. Right, Then what happens right, or should be happening in the life of every believer post that conversion moment is two things. There should be a growing awareness of God's holiness in your life. And what, and what I mean by that, when we use that word holy, I mean how God is perfect in justice and in living and his judgments, the way that he loves, the way that he cares for, the way that he creates, the way that he leads, that God is perfect and we are not. And so there's this growing awareness that the longer you're a follower of Jesus, the longer you know God, that there should be this growing awareness of God's holiness, while at the same time, a growing awareness of my own sinfulness. Now, let me stop and pause there for a second, because a few people are going to be like, oh man, I'm sinning more? No, right? You have a growing awareness of how sinful you really are. For some of the more seasoned Christians in our audience this morning, they know exactly what I'm talking about. Right? At, the moment, at the moment of conversion for me, right, I thought my biggest issues were like partying and drinking and self-destruction and maybe not being a good friend. And then as those sins started being rooted out of my life, guess what I realized? There were a lot of problems still there, and those were just symptoms of a much deeper heart issue, one that was rebellious towards God and one that loved self above all else. And that the real sin was a sin of self-love and wanting to be my own God. And that's a much harder sin to put to death. 
And so there's been this growing awareness of my own sinfulness. And what you see, right, is those two lines are diverging away from one another. Well, why is that? Well, if God is becoming more holy in my mind and in my heart, and I'm more aware of that, and yet I'm seeing how sinful I am and how far away I am from God's character and standard, the gap is widening between the two of us. Now, most of the time when this starts happening for people, here's what happens. We either buckle down and try to become more holy, or we start shrinking away from trying to know more about God because it's just too much to handle. I would encourage you not to do either one of those two things. Right? Instead, I would encourage you to press into that, realize how big that chasm really is, because guess what? Look at what the bridge is to that every time. The cross of Christ. It's not as if at the moment of conversion, the cross is sufficient for you, but then after being a believer for 15 years and still struggling with sin, it's no longer good enough. That what Christ has done is sufficient for you for every sin, past, present, and future. And I can say without a doubt, and there are other people here that are members of this church that would confirm this for you as well, that the longer you walk with Jesus and the more that these two things are a reality in your life, the more you love Jesus, not the less you love him. I have a greater magnitude and understanding the depth of what Christ did for me on the cross today, January 24th, 2021, than I did at the moment of my conversion sometime back in 2005. Not because I'm more sinful, but because I recognize the depth of my own sinfulness and how God bridged that gap for me in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so what we see, right, is that spiritual growth starts and is maintained by Jesus. And therefore, as we pursue God, we grow in holiness, but we also are more aware of how unholy we are and how much we need Jesus. And this creates or leads to more awe, more joy, and more gratitude. Right, Jesus shares this himself in Luke chapter 7, right, starting in verse 41, where he, he, he talks about a money lender. And listen to this. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Meaning that understanding our own sinfulness in light of a holy God is a not only reality, but a necessary reality for us to grow more in love with Christ and the magnitude of what he's done for us. That God revealing your sin to you 
is grace to you so you might press deeper into Christ and know him more and experience more of his love, more of his mercy, more of his forgiveness. Not as a one-time event when you were 15 or 20 or 25 or 30, but as a lifetime of daily surrender to him and what he's done for you. And as we come to this realization of our own neediness for Christ, and as we pursue spiritual maturity, we need him more daily. And this is where Paul begins to kind of unveil what that means to Timothy, starting in verse 3. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And so what, what Timothy is, is going to uh, have laid out before him in these next several verses is that Paul's going to try to show him, Timothy, we have been given everything we need in Jesus to both know him, love others, and fulfill his will for our lives today. Right? He, he is going to empower us to live this out daily. And he's going to give us what we need and it is going to be sufficient for today. Right? And he starts off by saying that, right, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Right? So what he's saying to us, he's saying to you, right, as a minister of the gospel, and some of you guys are like, I'm not a minister, I'm not a pastor. That word has been hoodwinked or, or stolen by the church, right? Every single follower of Jesus, you are a minister of the gospel. If you don't believe me, go read 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Right? You are an, an ambassador for Christ and you've been given the message of reconciliation. So if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, you are a minister of the gospel. Welcome to the party. And so as right, a minister of the, uh, of the message of reconciliation, right, he's saying to Timothy, Timothy, realize you don't grow without Christ. But in that growth, right, suffer well for the gospel. Now, this is not the first time we have talked about suffering. Paul is going to hit on this multiple times throughout this letter to Timothy. It's a consistent theme in Scripture, right? And the idea is that to be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus is to suffer for his sake. Right? I, two weeks ago, I said to you guys, one of the reasons I find Christianity so compelling is it doesn't try to hide what it really is. Right? Jesus says, take up your cross right, and follow me. Basically saying, be willing to die to make much of me. Right? Paul and the other apostles say regularly, yes, be willing to suffer for Christ. Right? One of the most fascinating passages in all of scripture to me is in the book of Acts where John and Peter are arrested and in their arrest, they're beaten for sharing the gospel and telling people that Christ is the Messiah and that he has risen from the dead right, and has power and victory over sin and death and has defeated it once and for all. And so the, the Sanhedrin beats them and then releases them and tells them, do not preach the name of Christ any longer. right? And it says, as they left, they rejoiced not because they were released, they rejoiced because they were considered worthy to suffer for the name. Now, I don't know about you guys, but my life doesn't emulate that a whole lot. It's like, God, thank you for letting me get physically beaten for your sake. And yet here we see, right, Paul, 
pulling things back in and saying, to be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus is to suffer for the sake of the gospel. It's to suffer for the name of Christ. Now, let me pause. This does not mean that, that if you're a follower of Jesus, you must live every moment in agony. But it does mean that if you truly want to pursue Christ and grow in spiritual maturity, you will suffer at times. You'll suffer with your own sin as you seek to see God put it to death. You'll suffer persecution, right? Whatever it may be, there will be suffering along the road. And here's what we see from Paul, though. Jesus will be sufficient to see you through that. You will not be sufficient to see you through that, but Jesus will be sufficient to see you through that. And he uses three illustrations to drive this point home about how we can suffer well and be strengthened. And in these illustrations, he's going to kind of juxtapose, right, the illustration. And he's going to say in each illustration that there's a goal in mind for the person in the illustration. And then there's a reward attached to pursuing that goal or seeking to make much of Jesus in that, right? So look at this first one again, right? Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So pause and think about a soldier for a moment. Soldiers are mostly single-minded. And here's what I mean that. They have an objective or a goal that their squad or their platoon has been given. And their goal is to do whatever is necessary to carry out the mission and to see that mission completed fully. Now, things can get redirected in the middle of the mission, but overall, they have a mission and they seek to carry it out. So as I was thinking through this, how many of you guys have seen the movie Saving Private Ryan? Show of hands. Okay, now, I know I'm starting to date myself a little bit with that because some of you guys weren't even born when that movie was released. Okay. So in this movie, right, this, this awesome movie, Tom Hanks is this uh, squad leader who's storming the, the, the beaches of Normandy on D-Day. Uh, his, na his name in the movie is John Miller, right? They take the beach, right? They have a foothold. They're pushing Germany back across France, right? And they get, right, this notification from higher up that, that their squad or their battalion has been given a special mission inside of France now that they've gotten a foothold and can start sending in more troops into France. And that is that there's this guy by the name of Private James Ryan. All of his siblings have died in combat and they want to bring him home. And so their mission is to, to not go with the, with the other troops and, and take over certain points. No, they're to go find this guy who was a paratrooper and has dropped somewhere across France. They're to go find him capture him, rescue him, and send him back to the United States. And the entire movie is them trying to find this guy. And what you'll notice about that, I mean, it's fascinating. They get in firefights, they take objectives, they link up with other battalions, but their mission remains the same the entire time. Men give their lives to find this man and send him home. And throughout, right, all of this, they try not to get entangled and let their own desires to go home, to be with their own families, even though they think the mission, by the way, is ridiculous. They still have full obedience 
and get that guy home. And there's this beautiful moment at the end of the movie where an older James Ryan, who they rescued, right, is standing there and he's standing before the tombs of these men who gave their lives so that he could come home and have a life. And you see the beauty of what suffering well can do in the lives of others. And so Paul, right, he gives this illustration of a soldier, right? And he's saying, hey, our goal, our single-minded goal is to suffer well for Christ. To pursue him and make much of him. And he says, don't get entangled in civilian pursuits. That's just another way of saying, don't let good things pull your attention away from what God is doing in your life. Guys, there are good things on this earth. Yes and amen? All right, anybody ever had a burrito? I had cilantro tacos yesterday, free advertising. It was awesome. There are good things in this life, right? Sports, work can be good. Family, relationships, Movies, entertainment, there are tons of good things to be enjoyed for the glory of God. I even know people that are crazy enough to enjoy politics. But Paul is saying our singular goal, if we are disciples of Christ, is to suffer well for the gospel and not to get entangled in those things as our chief goal. This means we may care about those things, that those things may matter, but they're not the chief things in our lives and that we would lay them down for the cause of Christ, even if that meant suffering. Even if that meant not getting our way. And if we do that, right? So at this point, we're talking about doing things in our own strength out of our identity in Christ. Right? Look at what he says that happens to the soldier. Right? He says that no soldier, so, soldier, almost like a soldier boy moment there for a second. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to what? Please the one who enlisted him, right? So if the goal, right, is to seek Christ and suffer well, the reward is the pleasure of the one who has enlisted us. Guys, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, guess who enlisted you? Jesus. How great is it to say that I'm living a life that pleases my Savior and Creator? How beautiful is it that we could take a step back and say, hey, I look at my life, I'm seeking to please Christ, and He is pleased with me as I seek to make much of Him. I promise you there is no joy on this earth greater than that. I'm married with kids. I love my kids. Seeing the way that they love me and my wife brings me great joy. But knowing who I am in Christ and having his acceptance and pleasure blows that experience and gift and grace in my life out of the water. And so Paul says, look, Timothy, if we pursue, if we, if we want to put our mind to it, to make much of Jesus, our aim, we earn his pleasure. And God looks at us and says, in you, I am well 
pleased. I'm proud of you. Keep suffering. Keep going. Keep making much of me. I'm worth it. And I love you. And he's going to give another illustration, right? Look at verse 5. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Right, so his first illustration is a soldier, right? And having that singular mind to suffering well for the cause of Christ. And then he, then he moves to the athlete. Right? And this, this illustration seems kind of strange, right? An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Okay, so let me translate that for us. If you cheat, you don't really win. We play by the rules or we don't experience the joy of victory. So how does this play out then as a, as a believer? Because it's like, what? I got, I'm, I'm not tracking what you're saying here. Okay, here's what I think Paul wants us to see. True joy, happiness, right? And, and, and experiencing life to the fullness is only found in Christ. And to pursue Christ is not just, as I said earlier, a mental ascent, and it's not just a list of do's and don'ts, right? It's knowing who we are, and it's seeing, as we saw in that gospel grid, a growing awareness of God's grandeur and holiness in our lives, and also a growing awareness of our own sinfulness as we seek to put sin to death. And then seeing, right, Christ bridge that gap. Meaning, Playing by the rules as a believer means doing what Jesus has asked us to do. It means even if you're not right, consistently in line right, with what God asks of you, it means you desire to do so and you recognize that not doing so is to play outside the rules and it's not going to go well. And here, here's what I think. I wish somebody had said this to me 15 years ago. Kevin, you are not as clever as you think you are. You are not as smart as you think you are. And having been in Gainesville now doing this ministry for eight years and doing ministry before that, some of you guys, I love you, but you are not as smart as you think you are. And, here, and here's what I mean by that you think that you can find a shortcut to joy that bypasses what God asks of you. And so you start looking for joy in places outside of where God says you can find it. And let me, let me give you an example of how your pastor tries to do this, okay? Just so we're like, because Kevin's being kind of mean. He's yelling at me this morning. Yeah, but it's for me too. Right, Here, here's one of the places where I know what the rules are and I try to skirt around them. Go over to Ephesians chapter five with me. I'm gonna read this to you. Starting in verse 25. Husbands, I am a husband. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Okay. So here is what God has laid out for me as a husband. Kevin, you are called to love your wife, Jackie, well. You are called to see God sanctify her. 
You are a part of the process of what I am taking her through to be more like me and to see her grow into maturity and with fruit to be the woman that God intends her to be. And your calling, right, is to exalt me, point her to the cross and love her well to the point of even surrendering and laying down your own preferences for her sake. That, that is the calling because that is what Jesus did for the church. Yes and amen? Okay, now, I can bring Jackie up here right now. She would love to tell you that is not how it looks a lot of times in our marriage. Right? When we are in the midst of a disagreement on how things should be or how things are going, guess what I like to do? I like to cheat. I like to circumvent the rules. And I go from laying down my life for her as Christ did for me. And instead I go, hey, baby, I'm a prophet. And you need to know that you are outside the bounds of what God has for your life. And you need to submit to what I'm telling you to do right now. And I'm going to instruct you as the teacher and prophet that I am on the injustice that you have just committed against me. Now, I'll let you guess how trying to take shortcuts in God's instruction goes for Jackie and I in our marriage. Usually not great. Right? And yet I've, I think I'm so clever. Right? Oh, Kevin, like you're, some of you guys, like I love you, but just don't come up and tell me how much you love my sermons sometimes. Like I, I don't need it. I love myself a lot already. And it's like, and so I think like, oh, like I'm this great communicator and God's given me these gifts and I can teach and preach. I'm going to preach to my wife. And I'm going to tell her all the ways that she's falling short. And if she just listened properly and took heed of my words, our marriage would be so great. And I take a step back. I say, actually, you know, you know, what's, you know what's the problem is here? I'm seeking a crown in our marriage to where we make much of God together, but I'm trying to circumvent the rules to make it happen. And God will not be mocked. And what, what we see, right, is Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, we are going to be tempted time and time again to take the easy route, to seek to find joy somewhere else, but suffer in obedience to Christ, and the reward is the crown. And if you're wondering what that means, it means spiritual victory over sin and enjoying Christ in glory in this life and in the one to come. Some of you guys are like, wait, you mean I don't get the full reward now? Nope, you don't. You get a foretaste of it, but the full reward is to come. And he's gonna give one final illustration in verse six. He's gonna talk about the hardworking farmer. He says this, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Anyone here ever worked on a farm? Yeah, it's like three of you. That's kind of what I figured. Okay. I love this illustration. Um, I, I used to help my grandparents on their farm over the summer. 
Guys, farming is hard work. And one of the reasons why I love this illustration so much is I think it fully captures this juxtaposition that, that Paul presents here of needing to rely on God and yet pursuing him fully at all times. All right, so he, he gives this illustration of the hardworking farmer. And a farmer can work and, and slave over his crops and taking care of his animals and doing all the things that a farmer may need to do to successfully run their farm and still lose everything if weather doesn't cooperate or if animals attack the livestock, whatever it may be. A farmer can work hard and still lose everything. I've seen it happen. You know, an entire potato crop that my grandparents did one year was completely ruined by some weird weevil. Right? And we spent hours digging them up, and as we dug them up, it was just, I mean, you want to talk about just hours of just like disappointing work. Right? Dig up the potato, ruin. Digging up potatoes, ruin. Digging up potatoes, ruin. Ruin, ruin, ruin because of this infestation of bugs that had gotten into them. But if a farmer refuses to actively take care of his farm, guess what? nothing happens. If the farmer refuses to work, nothing will happen. And so what we see is we are dependent upon Jesus for everything, but we also fully pursue obedience and maturity to experience joy in Christ. That's what this illustration of the farmer is trying to lay out for us. That, that we are fully dependent upon God, just like God is, de- excuse me, just like the farmer is dependent upon God for rain, for proper weather conditions, right? For, to not become infest, infested with some sort of uh, bug or whatever else that would ruin the crop. That the farmer is fully dependent upon God and yet works hard for their crop. And we are fully dependent on Jesus for everything, but also fully pursue obedience to experience joy. Right? That is the call of a Christian's life. And so I want to ask you this question. You can write this question down because I think this question I'm going to ask shouldn't be answered in, in 30 seconds. Right? You need to take time to, to sit and ponder on this. If you're a Christian or not a Christian, right? you need to answer this question. Am I content or frustrated with God right now? Am I content or am I frustrated with God right now? And am I content or frustrated with where I am at spiritually? Answer those two questions. I'm not a psychic, but I bet if we took a poll of people here and said, how many of you are satisfied with where you are at spiritually? I bet we would have less than 20% of people raise their hands. Because I've been a follower of Jesus long enough to know how infrequently I've seen Christians satisfied with their own spiritual maturity. And so here is typically then the response that needs to come from answering that question. If you sat there and you're like, 
I'm not satisfied. Maybe I'm heading in the right direction, but I'm not satisfied yet. By the way, guys, it's okay to not be satisfied. To want to know God more and to be more like Jesus is a noble cause and goal. But what are you doing about it? Here's my fear. The longer I'm in ministry, I think of all the things that really tend to break my heart. This is the one that gets that probably gets me the most as a pastor. It's not the people in gross sin that are dealing with like major fallout of some difficult situation where pastorally me and the other pastors are coming in to try to help and to bring wisdom and to pray for and help people. Those aren't the situations that really bother me. You know what really, really breaks my heart when I sit and think about it? It's when people that I know claim to love Christ, claim to love his church, claim to want to grow deeper in spiritual maturity, will show up week after week after week to church and they'll raise their hands and they'll sing worship songs and they'll go to gospel community and they'll study scripture together and, and they'll read their Bible and they'll pray and yet they're struggling with sin, they're stale in their faith, and they sit by in passive disobedience thinking that that's going to honor God. As if God will honor passive disobedience to what he's asked of us. Guys, God, God is merciful, but he's also just. Paul says that, that we will reap what we sow and that God will not be mocked. And if you, if you reap passive disobedience in your walk with Christ, guess what you are going to reap? Excuse me, if you sow passive disobedience. I saw my wife looking at me like, you're not making any sense, fix it. If you sow passive disobedience in your life, guess what you will reap? Passive disobedience. Guys, if, if, if a farmer walks out to their field and plants weeds, guess what's going to grow? Weeds. Could you imagine, right, you work on a farm, and the, you're a, you're a farmhand, right? And the farmer walks out and plants a bunch of weeds, and then the weeds grow up six weeks later, and they come to you like, why are we growing weeds? Where's the corn? How would you respond to that person? What's wrong with this guy? He's an idiot. He's reaping exactly what he sowed. And yet I've watched Christians, guys, for my, and guys, I'm, I'm included in this as well. I've watched believers do this for years. You don't make any real effort to pursue God in their life, to put sin to death and to take holiness seriously, and then they wonder why they don't see it. It is an active pursuit of the Lord with the foundation of knowing who we are in Christ that leads to maturity. Not you standing by hoping God's going to lift you up and just do everything for you. It's not how he operates. And God's word to us this morning is not a call to sit here and beat ourselves up over that. Guys, it's over. 
You're already reaping what you've sown. Repent. Sow something different. Sow an active pursuit of him so that you can be like the hardworking farmer who also begs God to make it rain. And that if we pursue God with reckless abandon in community and prayer and reading and repenting of sin and putting sin to death and making much of Jesus and less of ourselves, look at what he says the reward is. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Get the first share of the crops. Right, Paul's playing on illustrations and things that he's talked about in other times in Scripture, but ultimately he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Right, turn over to Galatians chapter 5 with me really quick. Right, this is a famous passage. A lot of you guys, if you did a wanna, you probably have this passage memorized. Right, look, at, look at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing, there is no law. Right, let, me, let me just pause for a second, okay? I want, I want to correct an error that I see frequently inside the church that even I'm quick to make. These are not the fruits of the Spirit. It is the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. Right? It's like one of, my, one of the things I say people do all the time. I'm growing in gentleness, but not self-control. Not how it works. It's not how it works. It's not like God's like, oh, don't worry, I don't want you to have that one anyway. You don't need self-control, Kevin. Just be patient. I'm not interested in you having that other one. That's, that's not how this works. Right? Pursuit of Christ leads to the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits of the Spirit. And in pursuing Christ, the promise is that we will reap fruit. Right? Follow the illustration of the hardworking farmer. He says, if you are the hardworking farmer, finding your identity in Christ, but pursuing him with reckless abandon, guess what you're going to find? The fruit. You will find, that, that is the promise of God to you this morning, that if you seek God with reckless abandon, you will find him. If you want to know him more, you will know him more. If you seek to put sin to death, seriously, you will do so. If you want to see a greater amount of holiness in your life, you will see it. It is a promise of scripture, guys. And yet we live paralyzed as if God can't do anything about it. He said, as the hard-working farmer who should have the first fruit. So many of us sit back and we read Galatians 5 and we want it and then we sit by passively and disobedient expecting God to give us the fruit. And Paul's saying, Timothy, you can't do it that way, man. The first fruit goes to the hardworking farmer. Seek Christ in obedience to him and you will experience growth and maturity. And he takes a step back to Timothy and he says this. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. 
Like Timothy, look, I get it. This is a lot. <laughs> it's a lot of work to tell you that your salvation is not dependent upon you at all, but your sanctification is in synergy with what Christ has already done for you. That your pursuit of joy in this life and the one to come starts and ends with Christ, but also has you responsible in some way, shape, or form. It's like, I get it. It's a lot to process through. But Paul's ultimately calling us to a faithful pursuit of Jesus for the long haul. One that considers suffering and difficult people, difficult problems, difficult issues. as not something to avoid at all costs, but to press into so that we might find our ultimate joy and satisfaction in Christ. And guys, let me just say this, because I, I think there's a tendency, right, sometimes to take something like this and be like, man, this is really, really hard. This is really, really heavy. Here's something all of us have in common this morning, no matter how long you've been a believer. We are all going to fail. As an athlete, you're going to cheat at times. Just like I shared how I try to cheat in my marriage. That sounds terrible. I should not say that often. Okay, quickly be taken the wrong way. How was a soldier? I might get sidetracked by civilian pursuits, right? I might get sidetracked, uh, bogged down by things that don't matter in the grand scheme of things. Sometimes I'm like the farmer who's lazy and then I wonder why the harvest doesn't come and why I see no growth in my life. And Paul gives this beautiful reminder to Timothy of why it's so important that we never move past needing the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. Look at what he says starting in verse eight. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I'm suffering, bound in chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound, Timothy. This is all true. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. See, see what he's saying in that trustworthy saying to Timothy, what he's trying to remind Timothy of one last time because he knows Timothy's tendency. Timothy's going to make it about Timothy. Oh, he's saying like I'm, he's saying I'm the athlete that's cheating. I'm not a good pastor and I'm not a good follower of Jesus. And I just got to do all these things myself and pick myself up. Or I'm, not, I'm the lazy farmer who's not hardworking and I'm, not, I'm never going to see the first fruit. Or, oh, I'm the soldier who's quickly having my attention point. No, he's saying, Timothy, you are those things. Every Christian is. That doesn't mean we neglect trying to pursue Christ. But remember this, if you have died with Christ, you live with him. Here's what he's saying. Timothy, 
every sin in your life, past, present, and the ones you will commit later today and tomorrow and 10 years from now were fully paid for by the blood shed for you on the cross by Jesus Christ. And that is why, throw that uh, gospel grid up there one more time, that as your awareness grows, the gospel looms larger in your life. Because he is sufficient. Because he is worthy. And when we are faithless, he is faithful. Faithful to forgive, faithful to love, faithful to accept. Church, the reason why even in a sermon on spiritual growth and maturity, we have to be consistently reminded of the gospel and what Jesus has done is because we are very, very quick to forget he is the hero of the story. I, 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 I love brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world and, I, and I, I preach the word consistently so I know how hard this can be. Well, one of the things that just like really gets under my skin when I hear some sermons is like people taking heroes of the Bible or things that we see and making them out to be the heroes and not God. Right? Like, like the story of David, right? I, I can throw a children's Bible out in 30 seconds if I go to the story of Jonah and they make Jonah out to be like some sort of hero or something. It's like, nope, Jonah is not the hero of the story of Jonah, right? If I go to the story of David in a children's Bible and David is the hero who like overcame Goliath, nope, David's not the hero, God is. If I go and read about Abraham and Abraham's made out to be a hero with some great faith, guess what? Wrong again. Abraham is not the hero. God is. Doesn't mean we aren't thankful for those men. Doesn't mean we aren't thankful for the role they played in the faith. But God is the hero. And church, for us, even in our own sanctification, as we mature and grow into Christ, Jesus is the hero. His life, death, and resurrection is the beginning and the end of the story. It is why we seek maturity in the first place is to make much of him, not of ourselves. To make much of what he's done, not our own obedience or glory. Our sins have been covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. Our judgment for our rebellion towards God has been satisfied and paid for on the cross and power has been given to us in the Holy Spirit. God has given us power. He has restored us to the Father. Let's live that out together. Let's live that out like the athlete who plays by the rules. Let's live that out like the hardworking farmer. Let's live that out like the soldier who is single-minded. And let's be strengthened by the grace that is found in Christ Jesus. So that it would be said of us. And those people in Aletheia Church... 
They love Jesus. They're crazy. They're crazy about him. And what a compliment, right? Yep, we do. We're crazy about him. Because he's the best. Because he's the hero. And because he's deserving of our worship each and every day. Because he laid down his life for you. He laid down his life for me. I'm gonna invite the band back up. And here's what I wanna encourage you guys in our time of reflection today. All right, we're gonna take communion. We've got these really awesome Dimatap uh, packs over here with a stale piece of styrofoam. Thank you, COVID. But we want you guys to take communion. And, and one of the reasons why I can joke about those little packets is because I believe the act of partaking in communion isn't so much about the elements themselves, but it's about the heart posture towards God and what happens during communion. Right? And what we're doing during communion is communion is an opportunity for the body of Christ to come together and to celebrate what Christ has done for us. Right? Communion is us right, through a ritual reflecting upon and accepting the fact that Christ laid down his life for us and in him we are forgiven and loved. And so I would encourage you to take communion as you take communion, repent of any sin, and then accept the forgiveness that God gives you for that sin. Live in that. Enjoy it. He loves you so much, he laid down his life for you. And then as you finish reflecting on him and worshiping him for what he's done, will you ask God to help you resolve to be strengthened in the grace that is found in Christ Jesus? To pursue first knowing your identity is found in him and your salvation is wholly dependent upon Jesus Christ and his work. And no matter whether you're the poor athlete or the lazy farmer or the bad soldier, God's grace is sufficient for you. And then will you resolve with God to pursue him with fervor and with abandon, seeking holiness, seeking obedience, and ultimately, as we saw consistently, as a reward for those that pursue him, joy in Christ. Because that is what God offers us. His joy found in him and him alone. I'm gonna pray that God would make that a reality for us right now.